Hello and welcome to Takeover Tuesday. I'm your host, Dermot Buffini. And as you know, once a month I take over the Brian Buffini Show and I interview people that have been there and done that. People who have achieved superior performance in different areas of life. The last few Takeover Tuesdays, I've brought people in who have directly influenced my life. Mentors and consultants who have helped me shape my thinking. Uh, We heard a couple of podcasts ago from Greg Lucier. And Greg was one of the top CEOs in America. And uh, we talked to him about success and leadership. Our last podcast, I brought in a gentleman who's been a, a great help to me, Dr. Pete Letty, who's an industrial psychologist on how to grow a company by growing its people. And today I'm joined by somebody who I've had the privilege of working with for over 10 years here at Buffini and Company. He's been a mentor, he's a great friend, and he has influenced me greatly and our company greatly. Mason Ludlow has had an incredible career. He's flown millions of miles from China to Hong Kong and all over the United States. He's lived several lifetimes and he's here to share some of what he's learned along the way. Mason, welcome to the show. Thank you. A lot to talk about. But just as a bit of background, obviously you've had an incredible career, mostly in the retail space, and you've served everything from massive companies like Kmart and smaller organizations like Buffini and Company and everything in between. I want to get into kind of some of what you've learned and what it takes to be successful as a company, as a person. And also one of the things that you're really gifted at is helping other people win and how they can succeed. Before we get into any of that stuff, here's what I want to do. I want to start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Grew up in Adrian, Michigan. Born in Marfa, Texas. And then after World War II, we moved to Adrian, Michigan. Hmm. What did mom and dad do? Uh, My dad was a sales manager for Michigan Producers Dairy. My mother was a director of nurses at Bixby Hospital in Adrian, Michigan. And my mother also was a teacher and taught health occupations. Hmm. Interesting. And you were an only child, right? I was an only child. They had one kid, they got it right. They didn't need to do it again, right? <laughs> I don't know. Or whether they were afraid. It was so bad they were afraid. <laughs> Tell me this. What sort of kid were you growing up? I think I probably was a pretty good kid. Didn't get in lots of trouble. Was an athlete. Enjoyed uh, swimming. Hmm. Enjoyed football. Ran track. I was just, I think, a fairly normal kid. <laughs> so I know football is a big love of your life, and you were a football player. What sort of a student were you? I was a fair to poor student. <laughs> I probably graduated in a class of, I don't know, probably 300, and I couldn't have been much over 50% in the class of uh, 300. Mm-hmm. But I would tell you that I was always a worker, mm-hmm. and I had to do. Mm-hmm. I did not learn well in books. Mm -hmm. I learned much better by doing Mm -hmm. as a kid. So you were heading to college, but you kind of got into the business world and you ended up getting into the retail business. Late in high school, I went to work for a company called Shoppers Fair. Mm. And I was a senior in high school when I went there. I liked the business and I found it, I could make a game of it. I found it was real competitive. And as a result of that, I two semesters of uh, business administration at Adrian College and uh, decided that I needed to go on to my career. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a result of that, I ended up with a company called S.S. Kresge. Didn't intend to go to work for the S.S. Kresge company, had no idea. Kmart had opened its sixth or seventh store in Jackson, Michigan, which was not far from us. And I liked what I saw. 
mm-hmm. filled out an application, and next thing I knew, I was in the SS Kresge Regional Office uh, and became a trainee. So, so just to be clear, so SS Kresge, did that own Kmart, or was it the same company, or were they different companies? No, they were the same company. It started out as the SS Kresge company, mm-hmm. and they opened Kmart's. Mm-hmm. Inevitably, somewhere down the road, we changed the name to Kmart. How big were Kmart at this stage? Well, the store in Jackson was number 66, but I believe that there were only 18 or 20 stores open hmm. at that So it was still point. at the early stages, oh, really, yeah, of Kmart. Brand, brand. Now, at this stage, did you join as an assistant manager? Where did you start your career I with I started them? as a trainee in hmm. Toledo, Ohio, mm-hmm. in a Kresge hmm. store. Did you find the industry, or did it find you? I mean, did you choose it? Did it choose you? No, I chose it. I did. I found it to be very competitive. Mm-hmm. It was physical, and I needed a physical outlet. Mm-hmm. And it was wide open. We could do anything. If we wanted to clean toilets, I could clean toilets. If I wanted to talk to people, I could talk to people. Was that part of being a trainee in trainee management, where you got to do everything? Yes, absolutely we had to. We had to go through uh, mopping floors. We had to go through absolutely every function that mm-hmm. was in a store. Mm-hmm. And you were willing to do whatever it took anyway. Absolutely. What did you learn at Kmart? Or what did you learn through that process? Because you didn't stay a trainee manager for long. What was the process? What happened after? What did you learn as a trainee manager? What did it lead to next? As a trainee, I learned probably enough to be dangerous in the business, very superficially, kind of exposed to everything, but not an expert, certainly, in anything. And I went from there to Flint, Michigan as an assistant manager. Mm Mm-hmm. From there, I went to uh, I went to Ohio as an operations manager. So you you progressed pretty quickly. Yeah, I did. The average was five to seven years for people to get a store, mm-hmm. and I wanted to be ready in three years. Mm-hmm. And I believe that all had to do with what people spent and were willing to invest in the business and in learning. And I was willing to put in the time, and I believed it almost worked out to how many hours. Mm-hmm. In three years, I probably was ready for a store, though I went into the uh, regional office uh, as the assistant director of merchandising. Mm-hmm. And I was there for a year, and mm-hmm. then came back out and ran a store. Mm-hmm. So you learned the business from the ground up. Absolutely. Every aspect, every element of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Pick carts up, everything. And every season and every job led yeah. to the next opportunity, but you got there through hard work and learning. You know, 25-year career at Kmart, I mean, that's a long period of time, and inside of an organization that's grown like crazy. You eventually moved to Director of Store Planning and Development. Yeah, that was my last position. And so, how many many stores were you responsible for and developing? At that point, we had about 4,000 stores, I think. Hmm. And in store planning and design, I did new prototypes of stores, There were lots of things in the interim, too. At one point, when I was a co-manager in a Kmart, I ended up involved in the IT part of the business (laughs) because we had the experimental system. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were working with Burroughs at the time, and they were terrible. We had a terrible time with it, and uh, they would come in and tell me what it could do, and then we'd then work to break it. And we usually did. And growth is going to do that, too, right? I mean, when you're growing like crazy, it's going to break every single thing that you had in place that enabled your growth. Absolutely. And then when you grow, so it's a very dynamic environment. At the same time, you've also gotten married. You've got a couple of kids going. Mm -hmm. You had a young family. You were a soaring eagle inside the Kmart world. How did you manage those two worlds, and how, how did that work? Well, to be honest with you, it's a difficult world to manage. And I would tell you that I think that people 
sometimes grow apart Mm -hmm. as a result of those kind of things. My children were very important to me, and I spent time with them. I was a football coach, Mm -hmm. Pop Warner. Mm -hmm. But it's a difficult balancing act, Mm -hmm. and I think it's very easy for someone to believe that they become less important than some of the business. Mm -hmm. Because you're just trying to keep up with them. You're trying to keep up with growth. But you're still trying to stay involved as a dad, coaching the kids, going to work every day. What was your favorite thing about working at Kmart? Dermot, every day getting up, I was excited. What were we excited about? Um, every day was different. Mm. People were different. Situations were different. Merchandise kept changing. Mm-hmm. The way you displayed it kept changing. It was truly a, a kinetic business. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed the challenge of it mm-hmm. being kinetic and moving all the mm-hmm. time. Why was it such a great company? Very early, the S.S. Kresge Company and Kmart were very close people. Even though it was a very, very big company, it was uh, Mm -hmm. very close to both the customer and close to Mm -hmm. the people that worked in the company. How did they manage to do that with such a big company all over so many states and thousands of stores? Well, I'm going to tell you, I think it's almost like a football team or it's almost like like an army. We truly cared about one another and we had a goal Mm -hmm. that was very clear. And it was to become the number one retailer in the world. Mm-hmm. And we accomplished that. We beat Sears, I believe, one year. And so it was commonality. And we had a common language we could talk mm. because we all had come through the same thing. We did not hire managers off the street. Mm-hmm. didn't matter what their education level was. They had to go through the same process. Mm-hmm. They had to mop floors. They had to sweep floors. um, They had to understand uh, the business from the ground up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it sounds like the goals were clear. Yep. Everybody's on the same page. Everybody understood what the goals were. Yep. And everybody spoke the same language. That's right. And then no matter who came into the company, they all started in the same spot. Nobody came in to, you know, bring their own version or their own ideas. It was kind of like, this is the Kmart way, and we're all playing for the same team. The answer is yes, but I would tell you that if... Anyone would maybe describe me who during my career was that I I listened very carefully. Mm -hmm. And if I were told, don't turn right, I certainly looked right. And I might even take two or three steps to the right to see what was there (laughs) and to see whether there was another way. Yeah. You know, you look at a soaring company and a company that really had the tiger by the tail, right? And, And you look at them today and... They're not in the same place. What happens to a company like that? Well, I, I think... Well, not to beat them up or anything, you know, because, again, we're, we're all students here and we're all learning, but what's missing today or what's different? I would tell you that I believed, and, and that's the only thing I can tell you, is I believed that we quit talking to our customer, mm-hmm. and I think we started to decide that we knew the answer. Mm. And I believe that change is forever. Mm-hmm. I think that we were too slow moving into the food area, consumable area. What we needed was more traffic. And in fairness, there were lots of changes that were made, and a test would sometimes take an extremely long time or would all of a sudden become a part of policy when we really didn't know what was going to happen with it. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing you say there is even the fact that you start paying attention to what the customer wants and where the customer is at. Mm-hmm. You think you know all the answers, and now you're kind of 
same way as any relationship with the customer or anything else, you start getting on different pages mm-hmm. or you start forgetting about the most important person, which is the customer. The customer. And again, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day, you know, we've talked about it over and over again is the fact that it is easy thing to do at times to forget what the customer's experience is because you get caught up in your own trying to make the business work. Right. How has retail changed just from your perspective or what have you seen the changes in, in retail? Retail has changed dramatically and will continue to. Of course, with online, it is taking on a whole new shape. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting to see what the governments do with taxation to the retailer mm-hmm. and how controls may be placed mm-hmm. by governments, mm-hmm. which always concerns me. But mm-hmm. but I would tell you that I think that those who continue to listen to their customer mm-hmm. And Amazon is a giant, Mm -hmm. but I would tell you that Walmart was a giant at Mm -hmm. one time and still is probably a giant. Kmart was a giant at one time. Sears was a giant at one time. I can go back to W.T. Grant was a big Mm -hmm. chain. So, you know, change is forever, and retailing Mm -hmm. is going to continue to change. Those who change will survive, and those who don't, Mm -hmm. won't. Yeah. You know, it's easy to think you've made it when you think you've made it, and you're probably most vulnerable when you're a giant. I think that's when you got to tear yourself down and start over. Yeah. Well, you've always been the guy who, as I've experienced, and the leader who always looks for principles rather than trends and dealing with trends. And in our discussions, it's typically a lot of the problems get solved when you ask, you've asked me the questions, well, what does your customer want? And I've certainly experienced that times. So I'm like, I, you know, I'm not too sure. I, I don't know if I've talked to a customer in a while. I, I think I need to start talking to customers more. But again, it's not about beating up a company. It's just like learning from our experiences and also just knowing that we shouldn't be surprised when they happened. It's part of the transition of growth and we'll always be learning. Do you think that if anyone ever asked a Cadillac customer if they wanted a Chevy Fender on their Cadillac, they'd have told you yes? Yeah, right. But they're there today. And GM did that at one time. So you were flying millions of miles every year. You actually, at one point... I was sales director for two pe- years. So you were flying all over the place, visiting every stores. Ours and others. Yours and others. And ultimately, on Eastern Airlines, you had, for three years in a row, a million miles a year. You had more miles right. than any of their pilots. Yes. I got received a letter from Frank Borman, the chairman of Eastern Airlines. So he wrote you a letter. Yeah, a personal letter. To yeah. thank you. Yeah, to thank me and to tell me that I'd flown more miles than, than anybody any pilot. Else. So obviously this career is going through the roof. What was the impact of being on an airplane a million miles a year for three years for you personally? Well, it was terrible. It did two things. One is there were many times when I would fly into a city and I would have a hotel room to shower and shave because I'd flown all night and be picked up by a district manager then in the morning and we'd go visit stores and then I'd get back in a plane that night and fly somewhere else. I slept most of the time on the plane during Mm -hmm. those three years and it certainly had a negative impact on my family. Mm -hmm. What was the impact? It was two things, I think twofold. One is I think that for a wife I think it appears that when a husband or maybe when a wife, if it's the other way around, is flying that much, that seems very exciting. You know, the last thing in the world I wanted when I landed for a weekend was to get in an airplane and go somewhere. And mm-hmm. I had enough frequent flyers that I could have gone around the world several mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. 
And that was the last thing I wanted. I really wanted to go home and chill out at home and maybe eat some uh, pot roast with potatoes and gravy, not restaurant food, Mm -hmm. because that got very old. I think it's very easy for you getting something that is exciting, something that is growing. You spend more time on an airplane than you do a lot of times doing the things you want to do because the business has you, which I think a lot of people listening to this, it's like all of us are in that busy trap. But, you know, that couldn't continue, no. you know? And for you, it, sadly, it didn't end in a great place, no. right? You ended up losing your marriage. Yep. And that's got to be extra painful because knowing you, the way you were providing for your family was by going to work and working hard. Yeah, and it's always easy to justify, geez, I'm doing this for others. Mm-hmm. But there also is a piece of winning if you're mm-hmm. a competitive person mm-hmm. that can suck you in, I think, to too much of that. Right, the game. Yep. So after Kmart, where did you go after Kmart? I went to TGMY. What is that? It was a chain of dime stores, which were like the Kresge stores, and family centers. Mm-hmm. And I went there as a vice president and regional manager. I went to Mobile, Alabama, and uh, had a region that went from Florida to Alabama to Mississippi to Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I was there... I think almost a year, and then all of a sudden I got a call and they wanted me to go to Oklahoma City as a vice president of corporate development. I went. I never wanted to go to Oklahoma City. That's why I ended up a regional vice president in in Alabama at that time. But I went, and the company was sold. I've started with companies with dirt floors and no stores, and I've been parts of big chains. Mm We sold the company, and and then I went back to Mobile, Alabama for a period of time. And then ultimately ended up getting back involved in retailing. When did China happen, and how did that come about? China happened after I'd been with a company called CT Farm and Country in, in Iowa. I received a call from a friend. And he said, uh, Mason, can you meet us at the hardware show in Chicago? And I said, sure. He said, we want you to talk to a man about China. And I had done some consulting for Home Depot. And they were in the process of doing a, a farm store, which I had knowledge of and had done some consulting with them. And I said, sure, I'll meet you. So I went to Chicago to the hardware show and uh, met with a gentleman named Dusha, fine, fine gentleman from, from China. China. Mm-hmm. And he had built a Home Depot, but couldn't get Home Depot at that point to do a joint venture with him. So he had built his own he version of it, and then he tried to interact with them to kind of... They'd come over here, and they measured it, and they then there were some problems with it. It didn't have a, a loading dock, but it looked like a Home Depot. And so we spent time together at the hardware show. First time I ever used chopsticks in my life, and... <laughs> didn't eat with chopsticks in China when I went, nor with them. Ultimately, they asked me would I be interested in going to uh, to China. So I flew over with two other consultants, and I knew little about China. I'd been in China in many, many years before that, when you really couldn't go in. I'd gone into Hong Kong on a boat. 
So anyway, I didn't know much about China and all the bad things I knew that I'd been told. So anyway, we fly in. I remember we flew in to Beijing, and geez, there were cranes everywhere. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind that there was building going on. Mm-hmm. And Du Xiao was out of Tianjin, which is south of Beijing. It's really the port city for Beijing. Then as we we went through that process, then they came to me and said, would you be interested in staying? And uh, I was alone at that point, so I went back to the United States. And I said, well, the one thing I can tell you is that if we do this, we won't know what's going on in China unless we got somebody on the ground there. And everybody kind of looked around the table, and I said, I said, I'll go. (laughs) At first, they put me in hotels. Um, and I said, that won't work. I'm not going to learn about how people live in China in hotels. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up getting a Chinese apartment. I think it was 90 square meters, which was big for them. Mm-hmm. I think 60 was the average or 67 at that point. And we started, we had a building, we had a dirt floor, no cement, and that's where we started. How old were you when you went to China? Um, I was 49 when mm-hmm. I first went. So you're 49 years of age. Yep. You're going to China. You don't speak the language. Right. You've never done business in China before. Nope. You're on your own. Yep. What was that like? I mean, you're going to Tianjin, just for some context. It's a city in China that has 14 million people. Has more than 14, but More yes. than 14? Yeah. Which is bigger than, you know, many countries. Biggest New York City. <laughs> right. And so, what was that like? Well, it's the biggest little city I ever lived in. I would tell you that I used to... At first, I started the old stuff where I worked constantly, day and night. Occasionally, I would go to McDonald's for comfort food. Mm -hmm. And on the weekend, I would wander. I learned how to work with the taxi drivers and how to tell them um, right, left, straight. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I could get anywhere. I started a life. They were good people. They wanted to learn. Their thought process was different, and I had learned. They were risk-averse, absolutely risk-averse. If you made no decision, or if you did nothing, or if you did what the boss told you and it turned out bad, you were all right. Mm -hmm. The only time you were in trouble is if you thought. Mm -hmm. It took me a while to learn to work with them and help them understand they can make mistakes. So you went to go and work for this guy, Dusha? Yes, And so he had to learn to work with an American who's on fire, who's shoot first, ask questions later, kind of, let's go get this done, project-oriented, you know, we got to make it win. Was his style very Chinese or was it different? No, his style was different. He was a professor Hmm. at Nankai University that the government had decided should be an entrepreneur. The government decided that he was going to be an entrepreneur? Yeah. And he was an entrepreneur, so he, he fit the bill perfectly. And he was in the contracting business then. He was building buildings. So you get in to work with this guy who's an entrepreneur. The government are kind of like, yeah, okay, good. You can be an entrepreneur. But could they also decide that other people weren't going to be entrepreneurs? Sure. So this is a very un-American environment. Yes. How long did it take you to adjust to working in China? I don't know whether I ever adjusted. My mother was a Canadian. Mm. Unlike most Americans, I didn't judge things by my standards. They were different. Hmm. And if you could accept they were different, then you could begin to build. 
truly. The principles of business that we used mm-hmm. were exactly the same. They were very, very American. In some cases, helped us, and in some cases, we had to adapt. And retailing was very, very new mm-hmm. for China. Not that they didn't have retailing, but it was different. How was it different? Well, the, it was all mom and pop stores. It was uh, street markets. So there's no franchises. There's yeah. no big names. No right. big brands. Not at that point. McDonald's was there, and KFC, and those were the only two. They're very hardworking people, the yes. Chinese. But there's no ambition, and they're risk adverse. Yep. You know, I'm sure that's changed over the years. For you going over there to open up this new, basically expand. It's not a Home Depot, but it's a version of Home Depot called the Home Way. Right which ultimately gave birth to basically an industry that didn't exist, which is now billions and billions of dollars a year. It didn't exist basically until you got there and partnered with this guy. That's true with that. Although we have to give credit, Walmart was there Mm -hmm. in South China, and Carrefour was there in North China. So... There was there was elements it, there. Yeah, there was. Okay, so they had an idea of it. So it wasn't just like right. ban you, but this was a new concept. You were excited about this, and and I'm sure the work provided for you back in the United States, which is excitement, opportunity. It was new, and you could spend an awful lot of hours there. But were you lonely? Uh, the answer is yes. I think probably the best way to tell you is one night when I probably was feeling a little down and it was late. The McDonald's were open all night. (laughs) And so I decided to walk to McDonald's and get a burger and fries. So I'm walking and it's probably six long blocks from my apartment. I still don't have a car and I'm still not on a bicycle, but I walked. And as I'm walking, I passed, and I still remember the place I could walk to it tomorrow. And I stopped, and I'm looking into kind of a, a little park. And I thought to myself, you know, I don't even like me anymore. Hmm. There's no question I can do the work here. It was just normal <laughs> for me. But I really was unhappy with myself at that point. What were you unhappy with? What did um, you not like? I, I can't even tell you. Then I walked on, and we got to McDonald's, and I ordered and sat down. And, and I looked up on the wall, and... Here on the wall, 6,000 miles from my home in the United States, here's Footprints on the wall. Footprints is a a poem, and uh, a man who thought he'd been walking alone, it indicates that this man has kind of at the end of his rope, maybe, and and he he talks to God, Mm -hmm. and he he wants to know, why am I alone? Why Mm -hmm. have you left me? And God tells him that uh, he's really never been alone Mm -hmm. and that when there were only one set of footprints, he was carrying the man. And I have to tell you that all of a sudden I realized in my life what had happened. I thought I was walking alone. And I realized all of a sudden Mm -hmm. my whole world started to make sense again to me. Do you think China allowed you to kind of wake up to yourself a little bit like I've always got the sense in talking to you that you got caught up in the work the excitement of work you're a hard worker you're a competitive guy you're caught up in the machine a bit Mm -hmm. but it kind of spat you out and you landed in China and China kind of served as a place for you to almost do some sort of like personal reflection and almost personal rehab yeah I think that's absolutely true I had to be with me 
And that was the first person that I had to decide that, that I was okay. Because you were at work all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to decide that I was okay. How could anybody else like me when I don't like me? And I would tell you that that was probably the lowest point of my life. Lowest and highest all at the same time, which is very, very hard to describe and interesting. The reason I've always connected with you is because you're someone whose experience I've always learned from. And sometimes that experience always hasn't been great. But you've been able to speak into my life by saying, here's the challenge you're going to have if you stay on the track you're on. So ultimately, we do have this, and it's a very difficult thing. It's like this work-life balance thing. You talk to me about the importance of learning to play. And you learned that in China. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. Sure. At work, they would come to me on Friday night usually, but... They'd come to me and they'd say, do you want to go play with us? Well, you know, play, I think of as kids Mm -hmm. stuff or bad stuff. And I can't even tell you why I thought that. But so finally one night they come to me and they say, you know, do you want to go play with us tonight? We're going to the gym. Someone who spoke English. And I said, I said, sure, I guess I'll go tonight. And they said, we're going to eat dinner afterward. I said, okay. So. They said, well, you're going to have to go home and change in your gym shorts. You have gym shorts, yeah. Tennis shoes, yeah. So I went back to my apartment, changed, and they picked me up. And we went to a gymnasium. We played badminton. (laughs) We bowled. (laughs) It was crazy. I had a great time, really. And the only thing that bothered me is, is being competitive, the girls beat the tar out of me in badminton. But all of a sudden, I learned that play wasn't a bad word. Mm. Why did you think it was a bad word? I don't know. Was it cheating on the job? Maybe. So what I'm hearing you say is China was helping you to experience life differently. And you went to China, and again, we'll get into kind of the working in China here, but but you left China a different man and with different circumstances than you went. Yeah, no question. I did. I mean, I would tell you that ultimately I I found a beautiful young lady that I married, and she happened to have a little boy who was three years old at the time who I loved dearly. What would you say fundamentally the experience in China taught you? Well, it gave me a balance of life Hmm. that I hadn't had in years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting even with the company. We would go on outings. We would go on some outings, and going on the outings, we would take our families, and we'd have a great time. I knew the business. I didn't have any problem with the business, but I found me, and I, I'd been lost a long time. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. A long time. Well, it's interesting. Sometimes we have to go to a different place to find ourselves, mm-hmm. and, and to think that a culture like America can't teach you to find yourself or to play, and that you have to go halfway across the world to figure that out, but you obviously became a better man in the process too and the experience has served you well and served others well one of the things I think you have and I'm just curious about this you've always been a person who wants to help and teach others like you've always been a person who you look for the opportunity to serve other people where does that come from? you know I'm not sure that I can tell you I can tell you way back in my career at Kmart we had a fellow named Tom Peters who came and spoke to us and mm-hmm. I knew I liked it on the floor with the people in the retail business. And when I say the people, I mean both the employees and the customers. Mm -hmm. So as a result of that, Tom Peters developed or verbalized a system called Management by Wanting Around, MBWA. 
management by wandering around. And, and I would tell you that that was the way I did things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I got things done through other people. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that I was so great or that I was so intelligent. I knew that I, there were a lot of people a lot smarter than I was. But I wasn't afraid to do and I wasn't afraid to try. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't afraid to accept people who were smarter than I or knew more than I and get them involved. Mm-hmm. I had and I developed what I called the East Method of Management. MBWA was just wandering around, which mm-hmm. so I did. Get out of the tower, go be with the people, yeah. where the customers are, where the action's happening. All right. And the East Method was when you brought in new people. Mm-hmm or even people that had been with you a long time. Uh, My East method was to go in and I'd work with them, do what they were doing, and I'd do it fast and set a pace, Mm -hmm. and then I'd leave. And then I'd come back, and I found that I could motivate people to move beyond what they thought Mm -hmm. they were going to be able to accomplish by showing by them how to how do it, to do it. <laughs> and then leaving them alone yep, to do it to and do make it. mistakes. Yep. So that's one principle you've always you talked about is management by walking around, and, and it suited you because you are about other people. The other one is teaching people how to win. And when you went to China, they showed up to work not knowing how it worked. Like you literally had to teach people how to win, and part of winning is training. I mean, you had to teach them the accounting, mm-hmm. the sales, the customer service. And one of the things you were telling us, you basically started pulling people into training rooms and just teaching them. And yep. you saw the benefit of that to the point where, you know, you were able to duplicate it and ultimately build a business that does extremely well and gets acquired back by the Home Depot and Home Depot end up buying that company. Yep. But ultimately, the efforts that this initiative you got involved with ended up turning into them acquiring the company and breaking into the Chinese market. <laughs> what, what led to you returning to the United States? I mean, what, your work was yeah. done there or? No, I left the company, went to Hong Kong. We lived in Hong Kong for a year, Sarah and I and Johnny. It was a good transition because John didn't speak English at that point. He did when we left Hong Kong. And it was just a good transition to come back to the States. I went with who was called the Big Store Asia. And the big store was a company out of the United States. It was an early adopter of online retailing. Hmm. And Li Ka-shing's son owned it in China for Asia. And I was there for uh, 10 months. And they decided, they bought HongKong.com, and they decided to shut Big Store Asia down. And so then Sarah and Johnny and I came to the United States. Essentially, you came back from China. You come back to the States and then you get involved with Buffini and Company. And, and I got to meet you about 2006, 2007. Yeah. And at that stage, Buffini and Company was very entrepreneurial. We were very mission-minded. Brian was out teaching events. You know, we were doing events, and then people were asking for our service, and we were coaching them. And then you got introduced to Buffini and Company, and you really kind of helped us put some structures to our entrepreneurial spirit. But what was it about Buffini and Company that made you decide to come and work here? A friend of mine called me one day and he found me from China, from one of the kids who worked for me in China. How he found that I don't know, but but he did. And he said, I can't explain to you what we do, you need to come out. And so I came out for a weekend and spent time at Buffini, which didn't tell me a lot. We went to Brian's house when Brian came in on a Saturday and I spent probably two or three hours in Kids Kingdom with the kids. Which was an area Brian and Bev had for a teaching environment for their kids. Yep. 
with goals and fun quotes on the walls. And yeah, it was a developmental area. And one of the boys and I played kickball inside. And I liked what I saw. Especially I liked what I saw in Kids Kingdom. I thought, wow, there's something special going on here. And so I went back and I said to Sarah, who had said to me for years she wanted to come to California when we came. And I said, I don't know anybody in California. So we came out two weekends later, and that's how we started. And I tell you, in going to Brian's events and having talked to Brian and my friend, their philosophy, I understood. <laughs> they talked about simple things, and I'm not a professor of anything. Mm-hmm. I'm not uh, a genius of anything. But I understood things that worked. The principles. Yep. And I had financially in my life, I've certainly made my mistakes. And the things Brian talked about were things that helped people not make those kind of mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I knew what he was saying was right. Mm. Because you'd experienced both sides of those things. Absolutely. And so I would tell you that I, you know, I felt like, well, you know, maybe I fit in here. (laughs) Maybe this is a new world for me. And Mm -hmm. and that's how I decided to come. You know, two weeks later, we were, we we UPSed everything out we had, which wasn't a lot because we'd come from China. And then started here. And I would tell you, I I have to tell you, I have to give Brian a lot of credit. One thing I said to Brian when we had the lunch, I think I was 56. I said to Brian, I said, I don't want to work for another company. I don't want to have to look for anything. And he said, that's not a problem. And he was... Then and has been throughout my life and knowing him, a man of his word. And he was. And I would tell you that I and my family are grateful for being in California. Mm -hmm. And we are grateful for what he and what Buffini did for us. People's the name of the game. Mm -hmm. And there were great people at Buffini from all walks of life and and all places. Each of us... Because we're people, we have our own peculiar ways Mm -hmm. and our own backgrounds. But but it was about people. It was about helping people do better than they were doing. Mm -hmm. And that resonated with you because that's what you've done all your life. I mean, you're a coach. You're a mentor. I never wanted to title in any company I ever was at. Mm -hmm. I always wanted, and if you looked at my my Chris card, the first card I had when I went to China, it says coach on it. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I've watched you and just hearing some of your story and, and also understanding the fact that your mother was a nurse and your father was a businessman. You know, one person likes to drive the initiatives and accomplish something, manage people. The other person's kind of loves to care and nurture people. I'd say that's a pretty good description of you. Yeah. How do you balance between achieving the goal? Because I can see it's not an either or, but typically you have people who are drivers and they, they want to win at all costs. Some people. You've always managed to, and I think a Buffini company, I think why you fit was that we just didn't want to win. It was how we won. <laughs> we didn't want to win and blow people up in the process. We wanted to win in such a way that somebody would learn or grow or be encouraged. How have you managed those things? Because at the end of the day, at the heart of you, you're a football player. How have you managed that? How can you manage that where you kind of, you achieve the goal, you drive towards it, you're competitive, but that you bring people on at the same way. I think one word, and I was a very good football player until probably I was a senior in high school, but I would tell you that it's about team. Mm -hmm. 
And it always about team with me. It wasn't my, I don't know what my accomplishments are. We talk and I can tell you about a gazillion things and a gazillion stories. But I'm telling you, I never did anything. Never. Mm-hmm. We did a lot. And I found people who could do things that I couldn't do. And I let them do it. Mm-hmm. If they needed help, I worked with them. But it never was about me. If I did a project for someone, I did the project. When I was done with the project, it was ready for somebody to roll out. And I went on to the next thing. I didn't look back and worry about how it was being managed behind me. Never. Again, I just believe it's people. It's a people world. Mm -hmm. That's what I saw at Buffini. Mm -hmm. That's why it was a good fit. Yep. Well, good stuff, Mace. I've learned uh, your story. As said, it could be four or five different podcasts we could get into. You know, I'm glad that your journey led you to Buffini and Company. We've been a better company because of your influence and your experience and all the things that you've learned. And I think ultimately the balance between growing yourself professionally and having a work-life balance, that's something that resonated deeply with you. So I'm glad all your journeys around the world brought you back in our direction. Hey, I want to end with five rapid-fire questions for you. That's a little tradition we have here on the show. So let me ask you this. What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? My father believed very strongly and taught me when I was very young that people could give me a bad minute in a day, Mm -hmm. but only I could give me a bad day. Mm Mm-hmm. And he believed that when you thought you were having a bad day, you need to go look in the mirror. And I was sent to the mirror several times. Mm -hmm. You decide whether you have a bad day or not. That's good. What about one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? I'm going to tell you that maybe it's patience. Because I am patient to allow things to develop. But if they start developing too slowly, (laughs) then... Then I start to get in the bush. <laughs> yeah, patience. That's a king of gifts, no doubt. What book has been most instrumental in your life? I would tell you that I think The Immigrant Edge hmm. in recent years probably told me about the people I'd been around for years and what really motivated them and what they had. Now, you don't have to be an immigrant, I don't think, to have the immigrant edge. No, no. But I think that most immigrants have yeah. that edge. Right. So I would tell you that. And I would tell you that very early in my career, In Search of Excellence, mm. and that was a Tom Peters book, mm-hmm. truly had a great, great influence on mm-hmm. me. Two good ones. What about a favorite song? One that gets you fired up. <laughs> this will be very strange. It's a small world. All right kids song but I would tell you that it it fires me up <laughs> mm-hmm. and is there a movie that you watch over and over again yeah I would you? tell you that I in fact I can only get it on a tape so I have a television in my garage that I can go out and watch it on uh, which is the only television that I can poke in a, one of the video cassettes. cassettes and it's an old old movie it's called Tucker and it's a car company, and it's it's about a man. It's about a philosophy. It's about business. It's about uh, lots of things. And I probably no one has ever seen Tucker, but I watch it every other week. Hmm. Well, really? I don't yep. know that one. You've worn that tape out. Well, Mace, I appreciate who you are. I appreciate all that you've done in your career, every experience, your willingness to share it, good, bad, or indifferent. 
and also a willingness to always invest in others, encourage others, to teach others. And, you know, I've certainly benefited from that and I hope many people have benefited from listening in our conversation today. So thanks so much for being here. No problem. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's show. As you know, I've benefited from coaches and mentors like Mason over the years. And before we go, we have a quick word from our producer, David Lally. Over to you, David. Great stuff, Dermot. It was so good to spend time with Mason here again at the studio. He was one of the first people I met many years ago at Buffini & Company, and I always appreciated his stories. A man of many lives. Dermot talked about coaching and mentoring, and that's something we do here at Buffini & Company. So if you want to learn more about our world-class coaching program and learn the fundamentals of working by referral, go to buffiniandcompany.com slash CCS and request a complimentary group coaching session. You can also give our membership consultant team a call at 800-945-3485, extension 2. And as we finish here today, I'll leave you with an Irish blessing from Dermot's mum, Therese, when she came to visit us here in the studio recently. See you next time. May the road rise up to meet you, and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields, and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. (laughs) 